Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. So last summer, we, excuse me, just a couple months ago, we asked the congregation about um, a series called You Ask For It, where we went over topics that you wanted to hear a sermon on. But there were a number of you that wanted to hear about heaven, and so we decided that we're going to do a little more longer series on that. And so this fall, from September till now, we've been doing that. You'll notice the, the blank white spot there in that little box. It's because I took October 15th off because it was supposed to end last week, and I realized we weren't done talking about heaven. So, um, And I'm not sure we're going to be done this week. Um, you can tell me on the way out whether you think we should be done or not if you, uh, if you want to. So today we are going to um, we're going to go into a subject about heaven that I do with a bit of fear and trepidation, and um, I have a feeling some of you might enjoy this, and some of you may go home and on the way home turn to a friend or your spouse and say, "I have no idea what he was talking about." Okay, so have I wet your appetite sufficiently yet for our talk this morning? Okay. So today we're going to talk about the cosmic car wash. That's not a, a name that begins with me, as you'll, uh, as you'll soon see, uh, but it'll make sense in a few minutes. Um, we're going to talk um, from the scripture, but I'm also going to reference uh, three books that you may or may not be interested in. Uh, the main one um, is Preparing for Heaven by Gary Black, uh, and the subtitle is What Dallas Willard Taught Me About Living, Dying, and Eternal Life. Um, great book. I highly recommend it. And then some of you will be familiar with The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Uh, we're going to touch on that as well this morning. And then finally, this is an odd one for a pastor to mention. This is called What Dreams May Come uh, by Richard Matheson. And uh, we're going to refer to this a little bit later as well. This is a secular novel. Um, the theology isn't particularly um, what you know, we would articulate, but there's some interesting perspectives in here. So um, if you're interested in any of those, um, you're welcome to, uh, to go to Amazon or to pop up after and just, uh, just have a peek here. Gary Black spent quality time. That's Gary Black from uh, this. He is a uh, philosophy professor at Azusa Pacific University. And uh, Gary spent time... Uh, quality time, in fact, high quality time with Dallas Willard before he passed away in 2013. Gary was a student of his, but they developed a deep and abiding friendship. Gary was with Dallas when he passed away. And so Dallas Willard, for those of you that don't know, has been very influential at North Sound Church. He was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California, a a Baptist minister, and also a... uh, Uh, a a, a great writer on the whole subject of discipleship. And so um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. I want to set the stage for today's talk by an explanation of where we're headed. We we just recently, as elders, looked over our statement of faith, and we want to make sure that it aligns with the historic Orthodox beliefs of the Christian church that go way back to the beginning. 
So we are a, um, we're an Orthodox church, not in the sense of Greek Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox, but Orthodox in the sense of Christian theology. We have a, a continuity with the, the theology of the church down through the years. And one of the ways that we articulate that is through creeds. And today, I'm going to invite you in just a moment to stand with me, and we're going to go through the Nicene Creed together. This goes back to 325 and the Council of Nicaea, and it's an articulation of the Christian faith that we affirm, that that we do regularly. Yesterday, um, I had the privilege of being at Holy Trinity Edmonds for the Synod, of the, um, the Cascadia Diocese of the Anglican Church in North America. We planted, you helped us plant Holy Trinity Edmonds just a few blocks away from us, and they were the host uh, for the entire Diocese of Cascadia this weekend. And in the course of the liturgy, of course, we go through the Nicene Creed, and they do it every Sunday. They go through the Nicene Creed as a reminder of what they believe, and it's certainly what we believe. So if you would stand with me, We are going to do the creed together, and uh, I encourage you to speak out loudly as though you really believe this stuff, okay? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, and for us and for our salvation he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So each of these statements in the Nicene Creed are very important in affirming what we believe. To deviate from this is what we call heresy, and in the fourth century, they were dealing with heresy. They were dealing with strange teaching, and so they called a council together at Nicaea, and in Nicaea, they worked out, excuse me, they worked out what good theology was, what orthodox theology was, what we believe, uh, and that has helped us and carried us now into the future. This is uh, one of the reasons why, um, why we need to look at the Scripture and why we need to look at summaries like the Creed, like the Nicene Creed as a summary of Scripture. However, if you look at the Nicene Creed, um, 
Judy, maybe you could take us back to um, the last, uh, just the last uh, section of, there you go, right there, perfect. You'll notice very little is said about heaven in the Nicene Creed. Mostly it's we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. There's not a lot about heaven there. And so the reason I mention that is because what I'm going to share today is something that you may or may not have heard. And you may or it may feel a little strange. You may or may not agree with it. And that's okay. If you have some questions about it, you're probably not a heretic, okay? Um, so, but we can also dialogue about this uh, as well because it'll be some different, um, some different thoughts coming uh, our way. So <clears throat> we're going to look today at heaven and hell and how our life now, right now, affects that eternal destiny of heaven and hell. So we're going to talk together about something called the cosmic car wash. Dallas Willard and Gary Black believe that how we live our life now affects our experience in heaven. I'm going to repeat that. They believe that how we live our life now affects our experience in heaven. Gary says, who we are now and what we will become carry eternal consequences that have already begun to play out in our daily existence. And the primary piece of what it means to be a human being is the fact that we have a will, we have a heart, we have an executive center to who we are as human beings that allows us to make choices. And those choices that we make are a key factor in the nature of our eternal destiny. So the key question that comes out of our will that we make choices is that we make choices based upon what we actually want. We choose what we want. Our choices are consistent with what we want. And Dallas and Gary believe that the wanter part of us, the will, is not radically changed at death, that we enter eternity as human beings, not something else, not angels or spiritual beings of some kind, but, but we enter heaven as human beings. And by and large, when we move past this earthly existence, because we have trained our wills here, our wanters, to want something, that, that that will and that wanting is going to continue after we have left this life on earth. There's a video recorded several years ago at Azusa Pacific University where Gary Black is a professor. And uh, he talks about this concept that we're talking about here in the, in, uh, with, with reference to a conversation that he had with Dallas Willard. And the two of them were talking, and Dallas Willard um, brought out the proverbial napkin. You know the great how many great ideas have come on napkins in restaurants. He brought out a napkin, and he began to draw something. And I was able to edit this video. It's about 30 minutes long. It's on YouTube for any of you that are interested. This is about seven and a half minutes, but Gary does a much better job than me of describing what we're talking about in terms of carrying the wants of our hearts into the future. So let's watch together. What he began to, what we get, began to talk about was 
one of the primary misconceptions that we have about heaven is that somehow we enter into eternity as something other than human. And that's a, that's a big sort of presumption, that somehow we change uh, ontologically or existentially when we die, that we no longer become or we no longer remain human. And Dallas just simply said there's no evidence that we stop being human. And so as a philosopher and as an epistemologist uh, he, and a phenomenologist, he was beginning to sort of pull from his Aristotelian realism. That's a nod to the Honors College. So his, his, uh, his understanding of how to differentiate things and some of the particular conditions and relations that are necessary to identify something as human. And he began, as he went down the categories of, of, of the relations and identifications of what it means to be human, we began to recognize that none of those change just because we die. The primary, uh, for him, and I think biblically this is true, the primary identifier for humanness is will, volition, choice. And if you know his uh, work on the renovation of the heart, he would say the heart, the will, or the spirit, the wanter, right? If you seek me with your whole heart, that wanter part of the human being is that which drives the rest of human behavior. And it ends up being the, the deciding factor, turns out, uh, of our eternal destiny. What do you want? And that key wanter isn't something that is radically changed at death. So, based on that premise that we do not actually enter into eternity as anything other than human, he took out a napkin on the table and he drew a circle with, now don't worry, it's, this is not yin-yang, but um, it may look like it first. And he said, let's imagine that this is the soul and this person's soul and I don't know why he picked this, just as an example. This is the soul of someone who's been ravaged by the addiction of heroin, a heroin addict. And this shaded in area represents the way that addiction has overtaken them, that this, the darkness of the, of the addiction has ruined relationships, it's ruined their understanding about their purpose in life, it has been, um, sort of terrorizing them in the way they think about themselves and God and their purpose. And it's just beginning to overtake part of their soul. But let's say this person is also someone that has a, a deep conviction in the knowledge and the, and the goodness and the salvific power of God. And so what Dallas says is, typically what we, what we believe is, and this is the big idea in the book, it's in the first chapter, which is a great decision made by my editor, uh, to put it up front because it was hidden somewhere in the middle. She goes, this is the main idea. And I went, it is? Yeah. I think you're right. That's good. Yeah, we should put it in <laughs> Editors are amazing, aren't they? I mean, yeah. So it's this idea of the cosmic car wash. Yes, and I am from Missouri a little bit, so I say wash. Cosmic car wash. And the idea that we have somehow is that when this individual dies, and they take their somewhat sullied soul 
through the cosmic car wash, if they have a certain amount of belief regarding a few moments on the cross, they pray the sinner's prayer, whatever you want to say about that, they come out as a perfect, which is what that means is sinless, and complete human being. And often the assumption is it's as if they never sinned. You will hear this theology often, either implicitly or explicitly preached, that it's as if we never sinned. And Dallas and I just begin to recognize that there's no biblical proof for that. And so we go through, in chapter 1 and 2, some of the exegetical biblical um, arguments for why the cosmic car wash is a myth. And what Dallas said was, it's not going to be like that. His argument is that we don't enter into eternity as this perfect and complete person. We go into heaven with sin removed. Sin is removed. So we are perfect. But we're not complete. And the effect of sin minus the shame is the result. So we come out in eternity is not quite who we're going to be for all, for all time. And what we end up doing in eternity is we end up working on that line right there with Jesus and others to choose, to choose what we previously have never chosen. To choose righteousness, to choose goodness, to choose peace, to choose love, to choose faith. Because, as I said at the beginning, we're volitional people. And our character is developed one way and one way only. And that's by choosing it. But you can see the effect of this theology would have on us, right? If I just believe, and, and so there are examples in the book, and the one that seems to take the, the brunt of the... Um, of the example is my grandmother, which I don't think she has any trouble with now. She would have when she was alive, but now I think she's in heaven and she understands the greater purpose was served. But maybe we'll have that discussion when we get there back together. But, um, you know, my grandmother is a good example of a person who uh, believed a few things about the cross and about the salvific power of Jesus, um, but went through the rest of her life miserable. And her hope was that um, this car wash would just fix her all up. So she never intended to work on the areas of her life that were not Christ-like. So she just hung on with her fingernails waiting for Jesus to either come back and take her and fix it all up or to die. And she never worked on that line. So that, you can, you can understand, I think, why discipleship then becomes unnecessary. And perhaps why some of the state of our churches are the way they are. Because it's just about praying a prayer, crying a cry, getting a Bible, and writing a check. So the big question is, why would I want in heaven what I don't want now? If I don't want to work on my life, if I don't want to make it conform to the will of God for me, uh, 
why would I want to do that in heaven? And so we have many folks who, like his grandmother, because of this theology that we've had, have become a follower of Jesus. They gave their lives to Jesus, but they're just holding on till they get to heaven, and the car cosmic car wash is going to clean everything up. But it doesn't seem like that's the way it's going to work. Now, we're going to take a little more time to unpack what's being said here, but I want to look at the scriptures. There are a couple of passages that may lead us to believe maybe the cosmic car wash isn't a myth, but is true, that um, we don't carry the consequences of our life choices into heaven. Let's look at that. First of all, in 1 Corinthians 15, where we read, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Some churches have that as the motto above their nursery. <clears throat> we shall not sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. So at first blush, it seems to suggest we're changed, but Paul doesn't tell us here the nature of the change, what it, what it means to enact the change for the change to take place, um, or others, <clears throat> what others who have died and gone before us um, at the last trumpet, what they will experience. And so the passage lets us know we're going to experience change, but in terms of the topic under consideration, it's not particularly helpful. There's a similar passage in Revelation 21, which is sometimes read at memorial services. It's a beautiful passage. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God and prepared for a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is an amazing and a wonderful and a hopeful passage for us. And it describes the reality of the new heaven and the new earth. We sang earlier about the new Jerusalem. And this uh, describes something wonderful, but it doesn't describe necessarily the nature of paradise where a lot of this work that we're talking about will take place. So if you remember a few Sundays ago, we talked about the fact that when we die, dying in Christ, we go to a place called paradise. Dying without, we go to a place called Hades. And then eventually, there's the new heavens and the new earth. The paradise and Hades are temporary places, sometimes called an intermediate state. And, uh, <clears throat> and so um, the scripture passage that we just looked at from Revelation is talking about at the end of time, the permanent place called uh, the new heavens and the new earth. Perhaps the most helpful description of what we're talking about here is a parable that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. Perhaps it's not only a parable, but has some deeper theological consequence. So I want to share this with you so that it will help our understanding. 
Verse 19 of Luke 16, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So the picture that we have in the story is the rich man entered Hades after death. It's the intermediate state that we spoke of earlier. And uh, in Luke 13, we read further regarding this state. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you're cast out. So between Luke 16 and Luke 13, we see that Hades and the unrighteous are conscious. They have knowledge of what's going on. They have memories from their lives on earth. They're in contact with others and are aware of events on earth and understand their current situation. Notice something about the character of the rich man, even in Hades. He treats Lazarus as though he is still his servant, he asks Lazarus to do his bidding. The rich man never questions why he himself is suffering. His character, his worldview, and his biases are the same as they were before he died. I've quoted C.S. Lewis uh, many times and also um, specifically um, The Great Divorce, which, which I encourage you to consider um, purchasing and, and reading. It's a, <clears throat> it's, a small, um, it's a small book, about 150 pages, um, but it's a description of hell. And, and what's powerful about this is the continuity that is described between our lives here on earth and our situation in hell. And the idea that God gives us what we want. <laughs> and in a very real sense, hell is a place where those who don't want to align their lives with God and his will find themselves because they want to. 
They, they haven't wanted to align their lives with God, and therefore in eternity, why should they do so? so? So they live their lives the way they want to. And the essence of sin, going all the way back to the fall in Genesis, is selfishness. It's, it's wanting to be like God. It's, it's doing what we're not supposed to do in order to make us greater. And so what we have pictured here in hell that is described by C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce is people arriving in hell and then moving farther and farther and farther apart because they can't get along with each other because of the nature of their personalities that have brought them, their character that has brought them there in particular. A newcomer arrives in The Great Divorce, arrives in hell, and a guide explains to the newcomer, newcomer why people are living so far apart in hell. He says, the trouble is they're so quarrelsome. As soon as anyone arrives, he settles in some street. Before he's been there 24 hours, he quarrels with his neighbor. Before the week is over, he's quarreled so badly that he decides to move. Very likely, he finds the next street empty because all the people there have quarreled with their neighbors and moved. So he settles in. If by chance the street is full, he goes further. But even if he stays, it makes no difference. He's sure to have another quarrel pretty soon, and then he'll move on again. Finally, he'll move right out to the edge of town and build a new house. You see, it's easy here. You've only got to think a house, and there it is. And that's how the town keeps growing. Now, when we contrast this situation, essentially the situation of the rich man in Hades, with Lazarus, we find that Lazarus now finds his suffering over in paradise. In Luke 16, 25, we read that he is comforted. The Greek word that's used there is related to the Greek word parakletos, which is the word describing the role of the Holy Spirit as a comforter to the followers of Jesus. Abraham says he cannot build a bridge between Hades and paradise. It seems that physical death marks some kind of a choice. And that choice is based on the succession of choices that we have made in life. In a very real way, all of us here this morning, our character is based upon all of the previous choices that have led us to the place where we are now doesn't mean we can't change, but it means that God gives us what we want. And if our character is aligned in a direction away from God, we get what we want. And if our character is aligned in a direction with God, we get what we want. God's way is set out in Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. So those whose hearts and wills have lived towards God find themselves fulfilled in paradise where they continue to draw closer to God in the way that we heard in the video. And those whose wills are set in the opposite direction find themselves in a place that also facilitates what they want, which is unrighteousness and selfishness. So in, in Matheson's novel, What Dreams May Come, and I, uh, <clears throat> again, I, I'm not particularly recommending it. It's not a Christian book. Um, and uh, the theology may not be altogether accurate. It's, it's completely secular. 
Um, I don't particularly recommend the movie. Uh, Robin Williams starred in a movie based on the book about 1998, and uh, I don't find the movie particularly helpful. But the book is very interesting because it helps us to understand a little more about the nature of getting what we want. There is no buffering in hell of the grace of hope and peace and selflessness that is also evident on earth. Those are gone in hell, and so it affects the nature of what's there. So I'm going to read you uh, just a brief description of hell as described in this book. There was an odor in the air, a smell which I can only describe as one of corruption. Ahead lay what appeared to be a sprawling collection of hovels. I'd say a village, but there seemed no arrangement to the shacks and huts. What is this place, I asked. A gathering place for those of similar nature, Albert said. There was no sound ahead as we approached the haphazard jumble of shanties. All I could hear was the scuffing of our shoes on the gray, flinty soil. Off to our right, I saw some people moving aimlessly, others standing motionless, all dressed in shabby clothes. Who were they, I wondered? What had they done or failed to do that they should be there? We walked within a few yards of a group of them, several men and women. None of the people glanced at us as we passed. Can't they see us, I asked. We're of no interest to them, Albert said. They're absorbed by their own concerns. I saw some people sitting on boulders, and it gave me an odd sensation to realize that those boulders were created by their minds. They sat, heads bowed, hands hanging loosely, staring at the ground, immobile in their desolation. I know that unless they were deaf, they heard us walking by, but none gave any sign of noticing our presence. They all look so grim, I said. They are, he replied, grim in their preoccupation with themselves. Were, were, they, were, they all, were they all so bad, I asked? He hesitated before answering my question. Finally, he said, try to understand, Chris, when I tell you that this is nothing compared to what lies ahead. The people you see here may not be guilty of sins which were in any way horrendous. Even a minor transgression takes on a darker aspect when one is surrounded by those who have committed similar transgressions. Each person multiplies and amplifies the failures of the other. Misery loves company, is what they say on earth. It should be. Misery in company grows ever worse. There's no balance here, you see. Everything is negative, and this reverse animation feeds upon itself, creating more and more disorder. This is a level of extremes, and extremes of even a lesser nature can create a painful habitat. There can be no rapport between the people because they're all alike in essence and can find no companionship, only mere images of their own shortcomings. So friends, these people got what they wanted. Their experience of hell is connected to their experience of life. And that's why we begin with the question, what do you want? What do you want? And we end here as well. It seems that God gives us what we want, and hell aligns for some of us with what we want, and heaven aligns with we who gather here, I assume, with what we want. Our choices in this life have eternal consequences, 
And with the accumulation of choices of our lives, we in some sense choose our future. I, I close with a, uh, another quotation from Gary. He writes, For those looking for a reason to hope, who are excited to pursue what may be around the corner, over the distant horizon of the type and quality of life that lies far beyond the reach of the current imaginings of human potential, now defined and limited by our cultural context. <clears throat> if you're looking for a purpose that is worthy of devoting your life to, and if you are wondering about the enduring reality of heavenly existence and its eternal call, this book is for you. And I want to add, this life is for you. Jesus as your Savior. He died on the cross to become the means by which your sins are forgiven. But now that you're saved, we need to start acting in alignment with God's will. We know that God's will includes acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly. And we understand that as we align our lives with his will, when we transition into heaven, that just continues in an even more profound way. Character transformation starts now by shaping our will into the will of God, and it continues in heaven as we are shaped into people who have the mind of Christ and who from the wanter in our very heart want to do his will. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, for the insight of your word. And while there are many things we don't understand, we understand, Lord, that you've asked us in this life to have the mind of Christ. And we look forward to that day in the future when the reality of your kingdom coming and your will being done on earth as it is in heaven will be a reality in our lives. And for that, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.